And you can kind of recognize then, if you've seen enough of people who have kind of unusual symptoms, you can see those as the symptoms, gotcha. and then everything else is their underlying humanity. All that noise that was kind of obscuring your view of who these people are kind of washes away. I'm Brandon Dawson. Happy New Year and welcome to Year 3 of The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this first episode of 2020 is Brandon Irvin. Brandon is a psychologist at the VA in Durham, North Carolina. Brandon sees patients who have no other options and who get into the VA system because of dramatic need. This isn't just somebody going to therapy to work out a few kinks. These are patients with sometimes life or death mental health needs. Hearing how Brandon approaches his work kind of opened up the black box that psychology can sometimes seem like to those of us without Brandon's training and expertise, and it gave me a newfound respect for the safety net of mental health professionals that exist for all of us, but especially for those in those situations. I've known Brandon for a few years. He's a pretty laid-back guy, as you'll hear, kind of unflappable, and I think I always kind of wondered how that served him in his work. Hearing the details of the patient population he serves and exactly what it takes to qualify for mental health services through the VA, you can see how his even-keeled temperament might not only help in his work, but might just be essential. If you've listened to the show, you know most of our shows are recorded in Cincinnati, but Brandon and I met at Kingfisher, an intimate craft cocktail bar in the basement right next to the Durham Hotel in downtown Durham, North Carolina. I've been coming to Durham for a few years now. My partner's family lives there, and Durham is a really wonderful place if you've never been. Along with Chapel Hill and Raleigh, it's part of what's known as the Research Triangle, or just the Triangle. About two and a half million people spread throughout those three cities. It makes for a large population center without the feel of a single huge city. Durham is, I believe, the fastest growing of the three with a strong urban renewal vibe and a great downtown core of small businesses like Kingfisher. Sean and the Kingfisher staff let us in just a couple days after Christmas while they were setting up for a New Year's event, and Brandon and I tucked into a little alcove for our conversation, sipping on some old fashions and talking about the challenges not only of providing mental health care and treatment for patients desperately in need, but also of doing it within the context of an institution like the VA. I hope you'll find it as fascinating as I did. Here is my conversation with VA psychologist Brandon Irvin on The Distiller. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks of for course. recommending the place. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Kingfisher. Let's start off with the standard question. Tell me, tell me what you do. I, I'm a psychologist at the VA um, hospital okay. in Durham. All right. And yeah. you've been there for six years? Yeah, that's about right. Six-ish? Yeah. I know yeah, you did some postgraduate I, work there before. Right. I did a year-long postdoctoral fellowship there. Okay. Yeah. Are there, um, in six years, I would imagine that your job has kind of changed a little bit, and we can get into some of that. Are you are you still are you seeing patients? Are you yes? Okay, how many patients on on an average week do you see? Well, it's tricky because I'm half time in one clinic and half time in another clinic. Okay, in one clinic I'm on an inpatient unit, and so I don't have like set appointments. They are living there, and so they, you know, like they never miss an appointment. That's one they're right there. <laughs> one part that's nice, but the other part is that like um, it's kind of more as needed, and so I'll see people sometimes for ten minutes, mm -hmm. 
three times a week um, or more. Sometimes I'll see people for an hour once a week. It just depends. So that's more like kind of as as needed. Whereas in the other half of my uh, work, I'm, I'm on an outpatient setting where I have more traditional kind of appointments. Okay. But they're it's for people that are new to mental health, and so, so it's mostly intakes, and so they take a little bit longer. Okay. So I have, for every half day that I'm there, I see about two hours of face-to-face gotcha. time. So yeah. let's, let's start a little bit with career path yeah. and how you got to this place, which, right. we, which we often do. Did you know early on that you wanted to get into medical <laughs> mental health, the medical field at all? Not at all. Not at all. No, I mean, like, so I, I remember as just an offhand thing I one time said at one of my sister's softball games in high school, someone was like, hey, what do you want to be when I grow up? And I said psychologist, not, mean, not knowing <laughs> what that meant. Uh-huh. And it kind of came true, but not through any real intention of my own. You right. know, I, like, I took a very meandering path. So I, I was a psychology major, but like, so are half of yeah, the yeah, United yeah. States people that are graduated with any type of BA degree, right? right? I mean, like, it's just kind of the, it's one of the throwaway majors, I guess, where you're just Here's like, something I can choose. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't mean to say that it's throwaway, that you don't learn anything, but it's, it's many people don't do, the, do that thing, yeah. right? They choose something else after they leave. So, you know, I d- didn't really have any intention of, of being a psychologist. I just like, this is fun. I like learning about people. And then... Um, Maybe the piece that is important about my meandering path is this is very like on brand for me, you know, like, <laughs> okay, I, I, I am, uh, you know, someone who likes to um, kind of dabble, you mm. know, I'll, I'll, you know, I played Frisbee golf for a solid six months okay, until I got average, you know, and then <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, all right, <laughs> done that. Check. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I even bought a couple like discs instead of just using regular Frisbees. And I was like, yeah, all right. And that was, you didn't have the bag. No, did. I didn't have the bag. No. That yeah. seems like the, the level at which you're like, I'm, I'm really into this. Right. I mean, my habits typically I'm willing to spend like 20 to $35. Okay. Right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> right. No. So, you know, for a long time I played racquetball and I, you know, I dabbled in golf and, and I'm using sports as an example, but that's, always been true for me I just kind of like enjoy doing whatever's happening in the moment and and haven't been somebody who's been laser focused throughout his throughout his entire life that's still true and we can talk about my work later and how it's kind of uh, highly varied but like I uh, so I went to Elon College well it was Elon College then now it's Elon University Mm -hmm. my my uh when I went there, it was not very prestigious, but it's a very nice school now. And so my, <laughs> I, I my, hear wonderful things about my it. My resume keeps getting better and better the longer I'm out of school. Up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's nice. So people are like, oh, you went to Elon University. Oh, oh good. Very nice. And I'm like, well, you know. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I went there and I did kind of the, the, the psychology thing, but I also had two minors okay. because why not? It was like economics and philosophy. And I'm know. just going to kind of like see what I'm interested in, which yeah. is the point of an undergraduate degree. Right. And I was, in, you know, like interested in all of it, I guess, to a certain degree. Um, I was like, maybe I should do business, but then that, you know, decided not to. So I just moved to Chapel Hill and was a waiter. Mm-hmm. bartender for a little while and my then girlfriend uh was an actor and she wanted to go to new york and i said well let's do that that sounds great great yeah exactly <laughs> so i i continued to be a waiter and bartender there but i think the real turning point for me was when i decided to uh work in a methadone clinic okay yeah so i was a substance abuse counselor which why 
I mean, you just you decided to like. Was this just something like they needed things and I needed a job, or was there a genuine humanitarian interest? Ever since I graduated, I was like looking for things that would be like interesting and maybe somewhat psychological. I had this idea that maybe like something along those lines might work. I don't know, okay. but I, but I was also like thought about being a fireman for a while. I thought about like doing, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can can see in the firehouse. Yeah, exactly. So like there's something like about like building relationships and being a part of a team that seemed appealing to me. And that's still true, like with psychology and that's something that I get to do. But you know, it was, I was just like looking in the advertisements and I circled one, like in the classifieds, you know, this was, Back when this was a thing, right? A movie, yeah. It was a movie. It was a it was a red pen, and I circled the one that I wanted, (laughs) and then pointed at it three times. You know, (laughs) like exactly. This is and the the next day you had the job, (laughs) right? Yeah. So I went, uh, you know, to do this interview, and and there, you know, I was kind of like, you know, what kind of qualifications do I need? And they were like, well, none. You know, (laughs) super. (laughs) I have that. Yeah, (laughs) right. And I think I can't remember exactly how much it paid, but it was not enough, right? I mean, I lived in New York City at the time Mm -hmm. and working with an incredibly difficult population. Yeah. Like, you know, some people appreciated what we did, but most people were just like, just give me the methadone and get out of my face, right? right? Like, I'm here because I'm addicted to a severe substance. I'm not here because I want to talk to a, like... Yeah, were you required to give them counseling? Yes, so they were required... I think we were required to have, like, one contact per month. All right. Um, but we ended up trying to do a little bit more, if I remember correctly. We were all like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. That whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to change the world. We're going to save some right, people. Right. Like, but here I am, like privileged white dude, talking to the poorest uh, and most like marginalized community that you right. can imagine, and being like, you, you know, quit it. Right. Like, like it doesn't hold any water. Yeah. Right. 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 In and, a society that. I mean, still doesn't treat addiction like a mental health issue. Right. It treats it like a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So they're coming up against basically an institution, not somebody that they're looking to for help. They're literally just looking for the meds and get out. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, fair. Yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, that's true. So, no, yeah, right. So from my like journey perspective, there's like two things that I felt like we're really missing. One is like the patients just had no buy-in to want to interact with me. But I also had no training for how to do that, hmm. right? So like I didn't have any sense of what is treatment versus what is conversation. Yeah. And I didn't also realize that those were not all that different to begin with, but like, you know, I I was just kind of like fumbling around. Well, right? I can imagine it be like I I actually want to help these people. Yeah, I wanted to have the skills to do it. No idea. No idea. And I didn't have any sense for like how to help, like help them engage with me. Well, maybe uh, help or help myself be better engageable, you know, like I had no tools at my disposable uh, disposal. So I felt real, um, I don't know, ineffectual, Mm -hmm. like and kind of helpless. So I, um, that was kind of when, but there was the other side of the coin, which was like, here I am talking to people that are wholly different than me that need help and I want to help them. And every once in a while that felt really good, yeah. right? And and so I wanted to be able to do that more effectively. And I don't, 
I, I think the reason why I chose psychology over anything else, because it could have been a sort like psychologists don't do anything different than a lot of other like counseling types, right? right? There's licensed professional counselor. The training is really the only thing that's different. There's a few like tasks that we are specifically trained to do, but that the actual therapy part, lots of different mm-hmm. people can do. Uh, social workers or even psychiatrists can do that. Um, but psychology appealed to me, I think, probably because it was a challenge, right? And I wanted to, like, do a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, a challenge in what regard? A challenge to you personally or just that it was a medical field that you knew was going to be challenging in, uh, kind of on principle? I mean, I, I think, well, it's tough to say. It's all of it, really, I think. Like, I think there's part of it was just, like, my ego, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that sounded good and be a doctor, sure. right? You know, that, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sounded appealing. Uh, but, you know, in looking back, I'm like, of course it sounded appealing. That's, like, you know, uh, you know prob- probably somewhat, like, my, my parents' influence. Like, do something with your life, you know? Like, make something of yourself. And, yeah, and you know you're yeah. going to make them proud if there's a, a doctor yeah. in front of your name. Or, or it sounds good, yeah. you know, to even other people like friends or something. And so there was definitely some ego part. But the the other piece that I really like about psychology, on top of it being kind of like more academically challenging, rigorous, more training, which kind of appealed to me, was that you can do a lot of different things. I still wasn't sure, right? Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. you could teach, which I've had I had some experience with at that point. Um, not like being a classroom teacher, but doing some like tutoring and things like that. And, uh, and I was like kind of getting just a taste of that and kind of getting excited about that. And then there was um, research, which sounded like intellectually uh, intriguing. And mm-hmm. then there was the clinical work, clinical, clinical work piece. And, and all of those kind of, I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. Right. And um, as I got into it, research really did not appeal to me. <laughs> right. No thanks. Yeah. So that, was, that, that sounded uh, all, just ultimately um, kind of, um, it just did not fit my strengths. Because it's right? dry? Because you just sort of. There's no relationship to right, it, right? right like right, it's, right. it's it, it, the, the part that would have been intriguing if there was more of this to it is the kind of like puzzle, you know, mm-hmm. and like the analytical piece. But it ends up being a lot of like writing. and Well, and also by its very nature, you're, you're potentially sort of seeing the same patient population, but not treating them mm-hmm. because to treat them would skew the research no. findings. Sure. You can do outcome studies and do a okay. treatment and see how, how well it works. And, and that would be cool, okay. I guess. Um, but just definitely wasn't me. I, I just yeah. want to like talk to people and see them get better, you know, like, right, <laughs> like right, ended right. Up being, and that's kind of why I was drawn to teaching as well. I, I really, really like that also and ended up doing clinical work instead of that. But I could see myself working as a professor, but not having to do research. Yeah. There's just not very many of those jobs really right, right. in psychology specifically. So were you prior to making this decision? I mean, if you think back about whatever your conception before you decided what you were going to do about mm-hmm. what you what your expectations of work were? Were you somebody that you thought my work should be meaningful? It should be satisfying. It should be some grand mission. Or were you generally somebody that was like, I got to have a job. I might as well get one that I don't hate and that I'm sort of mildly interested in. You know what I mean? I think I'm like maybe a little of one, a little of the other. Okay. So like I, I've always been somebody who feels like my job has to align with my values. Okay. And that's been kind of like a, a thing that I have had like at the kind of forefront of my decision making. But I don't necessarily, I never really like 
planned very far down the road. And I also recognize that, you know, my job, while it should be like um, part of my kind of values and be important to me, it shouldn't kind of define me. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I've always wanted to have just a job. <laughs> right. But well, one that I like, uh-huh. but one that I can leave and okay. be fine with that. And, um, you know, I think that's probably, maybe this is a good segue, why I picked like a, a hospital setting in the first place. As opposed to private practice. Yeah. I mean, you can absolutely set limits in private practice. I just, you know, need a lot more structure, right? Okay. So, like, that's why, you know, going back to maybe why I went into graduate school um, for psychology, like, if I don't set, like, an outside kind of boundary or, or a specific challenge or goal, uh, then I just won't do it, mm-hmm. right? Like I just, want, or maybe I won't do anything, yeah. you know? Like I, I often will rise to the occasion if it's there for me, yeah. right? Like if, if someone would be like, go run three miles as fast as you can, I'd be like, oh, that's close enough, right? <laughs> But then, uh-huh. yeah, right. But if you have a like a, a person with who's a starter and a gun and somebody with a stopwatch and they're like, right. now run as fast as you can, it's going to be much different for me. I'm like, you know, all of a sudden my brain is tricked into yes. this challenge, right? And so, like, but I've always known that that's true for me. Like, I've always known that I need some kind of external, like, for lack of a better word, motivation. Yeah, yeah, right? stimulus and structure yeah. and, and even so, assessment. Right. If I was in private practice, I might be like, you know, give me a call. Anytime if you want to s- see me, but you know, I'm not going to like make cards right, or right, right, like right. market myself. I'm going to like sit and play Xbox until you <laughs> give me a call. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's good that you know that. Right. So, so needing, having a place that I go into work like at 8 a.m. and leave okay. at 4.30 is hugely important for me. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. I mean, that was one of your, your wife who I know is a psychologist mm-hmm. as well. She is in pre- private practice. Correct. That was sort of one of those questions, like, and I thought afterwards, like, maybe I should have talked to you both, but she's not here, so we can talk about her. Um, uh, Is like, what is the difference between that? I think that's a really interesting aspect of it, is sort of knowing you want to do a similar thing, but also knowing that your approach to it needs to have a certain structure. Yeah, no, I I definitely need that. And, you know, Jasmine, my wife, she is somebody who, if someone's telling her what to do, she's like, get off my back. I'm going to do this better (laughs) than what you told me to do anyway. Right. 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 So, like... Yeah. I don't need a boss and, yeah. and can kind of operate in that, in that way independently. But That's I, funny. Yeah, I would kind of languish in that setting. Yeah, yeah. I, know. I, I totally get that. So yeah. you, is the, the postdoc, I'm assuming that that's sort of how you get in touch with the VA in the yeah. first place. And is that an intentional move that you see that you're gravitating toward that structure or did you get assigned that somehow? Well, the VA always appealed to me. So okay. like I, I had always been working towards... Um, working at the VA, mostly because of what they offered uh, in, like, how many different things you can do, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you, back to, like, I like doing a lot of different stuff. I I'm highly value having a varied day as okay. opposed to, like, having uh, kind of this, focusing on one particular thing and getting really, really, really good yeah. at it. I like being a generalist, and I like being okay. able to, like, kind of think on my feet and solve different problems as they come up and see somebody with PTSD one day and depression the next day and see a couple the next day and then do some testing. And, you know, like, right. I get to do all that, which is nice. And so, like, the VA has always been a place that one really values training, uh, but but is also a place that is really valued kind of like people being able to to hold multiple roles. I mean, they also have specialists too, but like yep. it's been it's been really neat that I have been able to kind of have one of these generalist 
setting. So, I mean, knowing older graduate students that ended up working in the VA or being trained at the VA, it just like sounded really appealing to me. Okay. But at that time, I, uh, let's see, when I was applying for internship, mm-hmm. I was still married, mm-hmm. but pretty soon after that was in the process of separation and getting divorced. And so like, there was a lot of kind of uncertainty for me in the way my family was going. So I had, um, you know, my first wife, we were kind of getting separated, but we had a kid who was two at the time. And um, so I didn't really want to go very far. I was kind of geographically restricted in that way. And I I mean, I like this area and I kind of wanted wanted to stay here anyway. And so it was like, like it worked out, but I was a little bit restricted. so I applied mostly to places in this area for internship. Cause so after like graduate school, the kind of formal education process, you do a year of internship, which is kind of like, you're still uh, technically, you don't have PhD, but you're operating mm-hmm. in this like full-time training internship setting. And I did that at a, a state mental hospital here, central regional hospital. And so I kind of like fell into this like specialty mm-hmm. through internship, but also a lot of my graduate school training of working with people with severe mental illness. So like psychosis or schizophrenia and bipolar disorder or severe depression or some other um, illnesses that are uh, kind of all encompassing mm-hmm. that, that affect your broader functioning um, and are not necessarily, well, sometimes it can be episodic, but oftentimes even when you're not kind of actively symptomatic, you're having kind of uh, symptoms, um, like negative symptoms with schizophrenia or something like that. But anyway, the point is that I'm seeing people with who are acutely kind of ill and in an inpatient setting for internship. So I kind of like fell into this expertise that I had, which really worked out well because there was a um, psychosocial rehabilitation fellowship at the VA. Okay. And I only applied to that one postdoc. Hmm. I did not apply to it. What is much more common is for people to feel highly pressured to get postdoctoral training. But you don't actually need it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. This is the big secret in, in psychology is that, like, you actually need a postdoc to get a job. But it's just not true. You could just, like, go get a job, right? After inter- you're, you're a psychologist. Just go do it. You just go do psychology, <laughs> yeah. right? But uh, Why do people, is it just because it's the protocol that's what people think you have to do? Or is it because people feel like, oh my God, I'm not actually ready to help anybody yet? Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, the, uh, I think what happens with psychologists is we're kind of by and large a highly anxious bunch, you know, right? <laughs> that was one of my questions, <laughs> right. yeah. And uh, so the, I, the, the kind of common theme is like, but what if I don't? You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. if I don't get a postdoc, then nobody's going to think I'm actually good at what I do and they're going to discover that I am an imposter, right? You know, like yeah. everyone's everyone Even gotta, though I have all these years of schooling yeah. and training and internships, right. I'm obviously a fraud. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and to a person, everyone in graduate school, every, and then it's recently kind of like come out in conversations that people that I'm working with that have been psychologists for now 25 years sometimes, they're just like, oh, I still feel that way. Wow. I still feel like a total fraud. That's right? crazy. Yeah. I mean, if there's anything, I, I, I suffer from deep imposter syndrome mm. in everything I ever do. And yeah. I always think like my friend Steven, who's a lawyer, 
It's like yeah. this guy went to went to Penn State and then yeah. got his, his law degree from Temple. It's like if there's anybody in the world qualified to do what they do, <laughs> they do it's him. And he's like, yeah, I totally feel like a fraud. Right. Like yeah, it just every, it just puts yeah. the lie to the fact that anything keeps you from sure that. Yeah. So yeah. So I think there's this like kind of cult of anxiety in psychology, which is probably true for a lot of different career yeah. fields, especially ones that like are kind of highly academic. And so like it feels like because you're going, you're in a class with somebody who went to Princeton, somebody else went to Brown, somebody went to Harvard. You know, oh man, they must be much smarter than me, right? right? They obviously I mean, have skills I don't have. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. the deep secret that nobody admits is like you all feel that way, yeah. right? And then finally, after a while, and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I felt that way. <laughs> right, right. Of course I did. Yeah, it would be useful to know. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, so I only applied to this one postdoc because I just wanted to be here in Durham. At that That's point, I was, yeah, I, was di- I was divorced. And so, like, for me to see my kid, mm-hmm. I'd have to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also just, like, I didn't have any real, like, draw or motivation to like specifically do this one type of training. So this one postdoc really like fit with what I wanted to do. It was like, um, you know, for severe mental mm-hmm. illness, but in the outpatient, it's not, not something I'd done before. And it was like here in the area and it was uh, in the VA. And so it was like, right. oh man, uh, I can like have this in at this job that I have really wanted. And so I was just like, well, this, if I don't Checks get that, all the boxes. yeah, I'm just going to do you know, something else. I'll just apply for jobs or, you know, hang a shingle and work in my right. private practice and, and do terribly at that. You know, that was <laughs> my, play Xbox. <laughs> play Xbox. Yeah. That, that was my other option is to just like languish, right? Like, and it's, it's, you know, those yeah. are defined options. <laughs> right. so a little, you said yeah. that you, you have this specialty, you have this ability yeah. or the specialization yeah. in severe mental illness. Right. Because of the internship. Partly. Or, or you got the internship because you sort of had specialized there during your education, or you had an orientation toward that. What does that mean that you have I this? had no idea that I was going to do this, right? Like, much like anything in my life, right? I was just like, oh, here I am. And, I, I, and like, as I was writing my letters for internship, or excuse me, for post, the letter for the postdoc, I was like, oh, right, my like expertise up to this point really does like hmm. lend itself well to this postdoc. Mm-hmm. I, I might actually get this. Like I was like, oh man, I didn't realize that I've been working with people with schizophrenia for so long, right? Because right. like in in graduate school, you know, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, which is where I went to graduate school, is, is relatively close to the state mental hospital. And it was one of the practicum sites. And so you could go there uh, and get training. And, and like it was one of the few places that you could go kind of outside the the like community clinic or UNC hospitals and get like training from psychologists that don't even work in, Hmm. you know, at UNC. Right. They're not professors per se. I mean, somewhere, but like you could just talk to people that are full-time clinical psychologists, which is, was at that time relatively rare for, um, I don't know. I want to say all graduates training, but for at UNC, right. A lot of it, a lot of the supervisor you got also were basically Mm -hmm. academics. Anyway, so, uh, you know, it just was like available and I kept coming back and doing these different practicum opportunities. And then, you know, because uh, the academic year is what you get paid on mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I didn't have a job for yeah three months of the year, three months of the year. So I was like just asking different people and I ended up working uh, kind of part time at 
central regional and, and like supplementing my income that way when I wasn't, you know, gambling online or playing poker or something <laughs> like that. Like that. <laughs> it was like other means. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So like, talk about, I mean, that experience though, you're 22, 23, something like that. Yeah. And you're working with dramatically ill patients yeah. in an institutional environment. Mm. I don't know. Like I can't even conceptualize that. That sounds like a lot, like a like yeah, a heavy so dose I of that experience. Four years off because I was in New York for for a while, and I was in Chapel Hill for a little while. So I, I was a little bit older, and even older compared to most of my classmates, since mm-hmm. a lot of them either took no time off or just a year or something like that. So I was certainly no elder statesman, but I you know had, had a little bit a little bit more life experience. Um, but I was still you know twenty five. And by the time I got into inter- internship, I guess I was 30, 31, something like that. Um, maybe I was a little older. Anyway, the point is that I was not not old enough to be president. Maybe it's the, th- <laughs> the thing you're getting at, right? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think that's. I think I can imagine being 30, 31, maybe you're less. You're like, I've seen some stuff. Yeah. I lived in New York for a little while. I've seen some real life. I know that yeah. these things exist. Yeah. But still coming in and thinking, having the... I I think I would go in and just feel like God. What if I what if I get this wrong? Like these mm-hmm. people need a lot of help, and maybe that's the education. Right. I think the thing that you learn pretty quickly um, in those settings, and I think you're right. Like I think when you first walk in, it's bizarre, mm-hmm. right? Like one, people are often forced to live in a place that they don't want to be, right. which which is unusual situation you feel kind of like guilty or bad about that even though like at some level you know it's in their best interest probably um uh, and it's there to keep people safe and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff uh but you know there have symptoms that you're not used to seeing like i remember in chapel hill there was a guy who had um who had schizophrenia who also uh, had very odd like physical movements. Mm -hmm. And before I worked at this unit, I didn't realize that that was potentially a symptom of schizophrenia, but also could be just like a medication side effect. Mm -hmm. There's like Mm -hmm. this, you take medications for long enough, um, you know, there's what's called tardive dyskinesia, and you can actually like have very rigid movements and those kinds of things, which we often attribute to like, like you know we judge as bad right mm-hmm. no, not not as psychologists but like it's like common uh, you see that and you're kind of scared by it right right, right. it's abnormal yeah and so uh i mean the irony is that like oftentimes the reason why they get those symptoms is because they're doing everything right 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 they're getting they're the taking their medications and all that kind of stuff and so yeah. like those are the types of things that it's like oh right and you can kind of recognize then if you've seen enough of uh, enough of people who have kind of unusual symptoms, you can see those as the symptoms and then everything else is their underlying humanity. Yeah. Right. And you can kind of like all that noise that was kind of obscuring your view of, of who these people are kind of washes away. Right. Mm. Because it's, that's the commonality you see with all these different symptoms. Right. Like, uh, you know, um, much in the same way that like if if somebody who had depression you wouldn't just be like they're a lazy bum right mm-hmm. like they they you know can't get out of bed and you know, blah 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 that's the symptom right, right and then right. you can kind of like at other times or talking to them um kind of see how kind of 
disconnecting that is for them or how hard that is for them. It's the same way with people that are experiencing like voices, right? Mm -hmm. That would be very difficult to have a conversation if a third party who is also in your head is yelling at you, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, and, and then how, uh, you know, hard it is for not only to have a conversation because you can't concentrate, but because other people are recognizing that you are responding to internal stimuli, mm. which would be off-putting, right? But like once you have been there long enough, and for me it was probably... I don't know, a month or two, uh, that was enough of like an exposure to be like, oh, okay, I see. Right. I see who these people are and I see what's going on. And some of the thing that I got, some of the things that I got the most out of had nothing to do with therapy. Like on an inpatient unit, you have the opportunity of doing what's called like milieu therapy, which basically just means that they live there. Mm -hmm. And so every interaction they have in the milieu or in the like environment is kind of potentially therapeutic. Okay. Right. And so even when I'm not doing kind of the official therapy where I would take them to a different room and ask them like pointed questions that are hopefully reducing their symptoms or making them uh, have more meaning in their life or whatever, I could be playing chess with them, mm -hmm. right? And those types of experiences were way more meaningful to me in my education and my own like sense of like um, understanding of, of who people who have severe, severe mental illness are than anything that I could have learned um, kind of about psychotherapy, hmm. right? That's amazing. Like, I, it makes perfect sense. I'm just thinking, like, for the untrained average person mm -hmm. dealing with people in your life maybe who have a degree of mental illness or the prospect of coming into contact with somebody who has a dramatic mental illness is a, is a frightening right. thing. Not saying that it's not to some degree for you, but like the demystifying of it by just realizing the mechanics of what's at play, the way that right. you're describing it. Right. Take away, I can see it being really effective in sort of taking away a lot of that fear and allowing you to see, like you said, the underlying humanity and saying, no, this is just a person. These are the factors that they're going through. Right. It's It's, you know, not unlike if I saw somebody who was having trouble mm. walking and it's like, oh, you've got a broken leg. <laughs> I have <laughs> right. some sympathy for right, that. Right. I know how to interact with you. I know how to make space for you to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're right, exactly. Part. I mean, there, there's lots of things that you could attribute these behaviors to if you didn't understand what it actually right. was, right? right. Like if, if uh, you just like, if, if that person with a broken leg, you didn't have any medical knowledge, you'd be like, well, quit being so lazy or something, you know, <laughs> I like, I don't know. Just walk. <laughs> just walk better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. No, but I I mean, that vocabulary and that knowledge right. of the underlying causes to be able to see, nah, this is what you're dealing with. And like you said, that some of right. these some of these behaviors are evidences of the treatment that you're getting that's actually the thing that you need. Yeah. Yeah. Super no, interesting. True. Yeah. So let's let's jump forward a little bit to is that representative? Who are the patients that you see now? I mean, you said that you see in two different contexts, you see sometimes patients for yeah. a very short period of time. Yeah. But who are the patients, who are the mental health patients that are coming to the VA right. for service right now? So yeah, so they're all veterans, obviously. So yep. they're uh, formerly in the military. Uh, some people are potentially uh, like reservists or still inactive. Mm -hmm. They're still formerly active. Uh, anyway, so the, but basically, you know, people who are formerly in the military. But I think what most people don't realize is the veteran still sees a relatively small percentage of uh, the, the Veterans Administration sees a relatively small percentage of veterans mm -hmm. because uh, the people that get care within the VA have to kind of either be 
uh, have an illness that is either caused or made worse by their military by the service. service. Yeah, yeah, so they have what's called service connection, which is essentially kind of like the kind of disability rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you have a severe medical concern, um, you know, you, you got shot or something like yep. that, that would obviously count for a certain percentage of, of disability, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but mental illnesses can be a part of that too. The other way to get in is to the VA is to be below a certain income threshold. Mm-hmm. And so we're literally only seeing the sickest and poorest veterans, right? Okay. Uh, and so, you know, we certainly index for a much higher proportion of things like severe mental illness or, uh, you know, poverty, obviously, and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so a vet, for instance, who right. served for a while, um, got out of the service, has a good job, but, mm-hmm. you know, insurance is probably not going to come. I'm asking. It's probably not right. going to come to the VA. They're going to no. go to their private insurers, like to their HMO yeah. network. Yeah, and so Care. they, yeah, they, okay. um, you know, did uh, their four year. They enlisted for four years when they were 18 to 22. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever injured in any way, and you know, don't have PTSD or okay. didn't see combat, or or they don't have a mental illness to, to speak of that would be uh, rated. Uh, they just would never okay. be seen, and that's a larger proportion of veterans that. Are out there, um, and then there's some minority of veterans that come to the VA. But but because of that, exactly as you just said, you're seeing a, a more dramatically impaired patient right. population yeah. than the than the average person yeah. in practice is. So back to your question, what I ha- what the people that I see in the one setting are very similar to who I saw at Central Regional Hospital, okay. which is the people who have severe mental illness, which basically just means. For an acute inpatient unit, you have to be a danger to yourself or others. And okay. you can be a danger because you don't know, you can't remember to turn off the stove or that you think your neighbor is part of an F, you know, FBI conspiracy and you are right. might shoot him, you know, right, or something right, right, like right. that. Or, you know, you're suicidal or you yep. a number have substance abuse issues, a number of different yep. kind of concerns that would get you um, an inpatient admission. Whether That's going to make for heavy voluntary, days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I, so I also do some supervision. I have interns that are up there that were in the same position that I was, mm-hmm. you know, when I was at Central Regional. Uh, I'm, I'm often having to say, but like, but why are they here specifically, right? Like to get into this particular unit, they have to um, have some pretty severe kind of issue going on. Not that there's anything wrong with them or they can't get over it or anything mm-hmm. like that, but like you don't just kind of be kind of depressed. Right. And then come to the inpatient unit of the VA. But do you mean that the interns are somehow unclear on that or are trying to yeah. treat, treat so like, like surface symptoms and not yes. get to the root cause? Okay. Right. They often are talking to people about kind of relatively surface things and, gotcha. and, and they're like, no, I, I think they're fine, you know? And, I, and I'm like, well, <laughs> do you? I mean, they <laughs> might be on the whole, right, right, but right. right now they need help. Okay. And if, if they're only telling you yeah, yeah. this amount of things that seem less severe, and they're not telling you the whole story, right? And you're you're kind of being bluffed, right? What exactly. is not to interrupt? What is the treatment pathway? How do they get through that? How does mm-hmm. guy has come home? He's been in the service for four years, yeah. six years, eight years. How does he get? Who does he see or not see that gets him into the VA right. system? I mean, basically everyone who is inpatient, it, it, they could have been through like an, at another part of the hospital. But most of the people that come to the like um, 
inpatient unit come through the ER or the ED, okay. you know, All right. the emergency department. Uh, and so they present usually. Yep. Sometimes police bring people in because, you know, okay. they have, or, or an ambulance does or something like that because... So again, your basic entry yeah. point is fairly traumatic. Yeah. Fairly so It's an emergency, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, so that's like half of what I do. And, and, and I see people for as long as they're there. And I that can be a 22-year-old that just got out of the military you know, had a pretty severe substance use disorder, mm-hmm. They, but they just don't want to be there. And so two days after they detox from whatever, they're, they're gone, right? Yep. Uh, or it could be somebody who has pretty severe symptoms and has been there for a long time and might be there for a long time to, until those symptoms resolve. Um, the hardest part is when there's this like tricky in between of like, they're safe to go, but there's no safe place for mm-hmm. them to go, yeah. right? And And that becomes certainly a, a problem that is difficult to solve, but we try to do our best to, to do that. What would be an example? Like, how, what are your options then? It's um, a good question, right? It depends on what the issue is, but like sometimes there's placement in different facilities. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's going back to the family with a little bit of coaching or education. Sometimes there's, you know, group homes or sometimes shelters or, you know, there's lots of different things that could potentially happen. Um, and what maybe could, what maybe is the most frustrating thing is knowing that some of these services aren't uh, kind of well funded in their own right or mm-hmm, those types mm-hmm. of things, and knowing that you know they might not get they might slip through the net. Could yeah, and then yeah. you know the thing that's maybe difficult, whether it's because of you know an issue like that or just because like these issues are pretty severe, is like you don't sometimes see the people that you're talking to and, and you know, you're, you developed a relationship with them and then they're gone and you don't ever hear from them again. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. pretty tough. And, you know, I do that in the other side of my job too, where I'm seeing people who are new to mental health and I'm doing an intake, sometimes seeing them for, a, in, in the outpatient realm, sometimes seeing them for two and three sessions and then they go to their kind of home clinic and then poof, you know, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> they're gone, you know, and that's always maybe always true for everyone in everybody's lives. At some point, they're going to, you know, might not see them again. But like there's a sense of completion. <laughs> well, and also like in therapy, in most, of our, yeah. in most of our sort of transient yeah. interactions with people, the stakes aren't as high. Like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Most of the well, people that we're it's meeting. It's not as like, intimate either. Right, right. right exactly. Yeah. yeah. For all those reasons. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Yeah. So you, you develop an intimate relationship with somebody. Um, where they have shared vulnerable things in Mm -hmm. their lives and you hold that for them for a period of time and then sometimes that's it. And that's, Mm -hmm. and in, in many outpatient like, uh, settings, you would get a chance to kind of process that and say goodbye. And, and these two settings that I've chosen, really, I, I don't get that opportunity, which can be pretty tough. Yeah. I mean, you sort of described when we're talking about how you got into this, the, the idea of, having a job it sounded like part of that calculus was yeah. a job that you could leave behind at the end of the day this this sounds like the kind of stuff that would stick with certainly would stick with me yeah it can it can for sure um especially well i don't know i mean i think there's multiple ways that it can stick with you um but yeah no it's a, it's a relationship that you you have with people and I, it, that's true for probably any psychologist in any clinical setting uh, you develop a relationship with somebody and you worry about them or you have like right. uh, a, a boundary and appropriate affection for them, you know, and you kind of feel like you want them to do well. And um, when 
I mean, even when it works, it can still be like yeah. a lot of emotional energy, you know? It also seems like some of the skills that might make someone particularly good at what you do are the skills that would potentially make it more difficult for them to let go of mm. the, the degree of empathy necessary to actually, and maybe that's not the right word. Maybe it really is skills and training and the th you know, it's like for some people it's yeah. a math problem and they do this and I do this and that equals this, but it seems like the more empathy you have, the more difficult it would yeah. be to let go of some of that stuff at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah, no, there's absolutely lots of different types of psychotherapy. And some people do like manualized therapy where mm -hmm. it's kind of, um, you know, it, it is more of that math problem, right? And you have X number of sessions and in session one, you do this and session two, you do this. And this, you know, kind of like um, based upon like symptom reduction, those types of right. things, right? And that's one type of psychotherapy that I imagine people still feel invested in that mm -hmm. succeeding and, and get connected uh, to people. But I think that's much different than the level of um, kind of intimacy in these other types of therapy in which you kind of, well, in those manualized treatments, you might hear people's greatest fears, like quite literally, especially if it's PTSD or something like right. that, right? Um, but there's something different when you hear like, this is, you know, someone tells you this is who I am, right? Uh, and you uh, are required in a lot of ways, but also that's part of what you signed up for. It's like kind of voluntary to accept that and work on it, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what comes up, while you might be working to change some aspect of that, there's like the thing that is part of the work is like fully accepting that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't really know where I'm going with this other than to say that, like, that's a thing. Well, yeah, because I would imagine that most of the people that they're interacting with reject that. That, that ability to sort yeah. of say, this is this is who I am. Most of what they're probably coming up against in society is, but that's not okay. Yeah. Like, you yeah. need to be something else in order for me to be okay with you and to have a space right. where they can say, this is who I am. And you can say, well, maybe we don't want you to stay there, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. That yeah, is yeah. who you are right now. Like, no, yeah. That's that's probably putting it more eloquently than I than I have so far. But I, yeah, I think if that worked, right? If it worked to just be like, "We'll stop using drugs, man." <laughs> yeah. Well, then I wouldn't have a job, right? But that, right. that doesn't work, right? You can't just tell someone to stop doing something and then and then have them stop it. But like, I think the other piece that you're talking about is not only the implicit message in that is like, I I don't accept you, and I'm not going to work on this with right. you. And in, in fact, that thing that you're going through, I'm just going to invalidate it altogether. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, and part of what we do is like, check that out. Like, huh, you know, this is a thing that you don't like about yourself. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. As opposed to tell, essentially the message is tell me less. Yeah, right? don't, yeah. don't, whatever <laughs> right. you do, do not tell me about right. that. Right, yeah. yeah. And oftentimes that comes up in, you know, the relationship between you and that person, mm -hmm. right? It can be, it can be about telling you, telling, you tell me more about what you don't like about me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's not something that you get often right. in a relationship outside of the therapy room is the willingness to say, like, you're going to tell me all the things that I've done wrong, hmm. all those things that I've done wrong. And I'm just going to listen and I'm just going to be here for that. Right. Man, talk about a skill set that you just don't explore in almost any other profession. Yeah. Yeah. You really don't. I, you know, I, I think. This might be this feeling that I am having currently talking about these things. Like when I just said that, like, 
I got excited about somebody telling me all of the things that I was <laughs> going to do wrong. Because it's like that, that we're getting somewhere. We're finally getting somewhere. Right. And I feel like that maybe that's the like counter energy to wow. this exhaustion that comes with uh -huh. like having empathy all the time for people that are going through a lot of pain is that it also the other side of the coin is like when they're kind of experiencing or disclosing that they're also like doing it they're making like progress. doing therapy yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Make, making progress uh is probably the closest approximation but they're like working through something yeah yeah they're just not avoiding yeah. it or yeah i is mean it, who knows because when i when i think progress i think that there's like a, a specific outcome that we're right. going for right? Right, right, right and in many therapies there are there's like you who have depression symptoms and we want those to be reduced but mm -hmm. like what does it mean to have a greater sense of well-being or purpose? Yeah. We don't know yet, mm. right? We haven't worked through this muck to get to that point. And so, like, progress, like, implies some, like, linear sense of recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think, like, while that word probably describes this accurately, it's, like, process maybe. In the right yeah. process, so to speak. Well, you're processing it in some way. Yeah, yeah, You're going to yeah. learn something new about yourself, right. you know? So is that, I mean, the the old sort of myth is, you know, you don't ever want to live in a house built by an electrician and that, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that psychologists get into that field because they're so messed up that they want to, like, avoid their own stuff right. by yeah, working yeah. with everybody else. But it sounds like part of what you're saying which actually makes sense and I don't really necessarily subscribe to either of those adages <laughs> right is that you're the type of person who's like no bring it on let's talk about the real stuff like I'm yeah. not afraid of that my th my skin is thick enough that not only am I able to hear that but I kind of relish it because right. it means that you're working on the right stuff and maybe it means that I get to work on the right yeah, stuff yeah yeah and I think the th maybe the thing that is ultimately very like satisfying or interesting about that is like I not necessarily in the therapy room although I often do learn something about myself there like but maybe afterwards or in talking with colleagues or whatever I, I'm learning a lot about myself you know mm -hmm. like and so not only am I like getting a charge out of helping somebody and kind of like helping them through this process and and feeling affirmed in that way that I'm doing a good job um, which feels good but I'm also learning a lot about myself and kind of it's not the same, certainly, but I'm required in a lot of ways to, like, check out my own biases, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, if I wasn't a psychologist, I wouldn't be very interested. Well, that's, I take that back. If I wasn't a psychologist, I would have less uh, incentive to be interested right. in, like, anti-racism or kind of diversity and multi multicultural training or those types of things, which now is a huge part of my identity and something that I find, like, really important. Mm -hmm. And... I think a lot of that is because I am, uh, through my work, um, required to talk to a lot of people that are going through those issues. And I want to learn about, like, my own internal reaction to um, to those issues, but also, like, learn more intellectual stuff. Like, read more books about, like, uh, ways that I can be helpful. Right. right? right and that right. that's, like, kind of going back to what I have talked about before where I like need to external challenges that's one of those external challenges right mm -hmm. where if I'm not required from my job to talk to people who are disadvantaged then I may not do that and I understand that on the one hand maybe that's a failing of my own personality on the other hand like 
I recognize that about myself and want to put myself in positions yeah. to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, I, I have used the phrase before with people like sometimes it's about our ability to build strength into our areas of weakness mm -hmm. where we lack the ability to do that. And yeah. if we can create frameworks that force us to learn the things that we want to learn, but won't learn on, on our own. Yeah. That's just the same thing as having wanted to, le <laughs> to learn it enough. Right. So yeah. no, I mean, I think that's, that's a great recognition like this is this helps me become the person that I want to be who I might not right. have the force of will to do yeah. were these people not requiring of it, it of me. Right, right. Yeah, I mean if I was like a tennis pro, mm -hmm. right? I probably wouldn't know that much about, you know, I I wouldn't be reading a book on anti-racism, right? Right. I mean maybe I would, but like I I certainly would not have the same incentive to do right. so. Right. Wouldn't yeah. hold you to. Yeah. In terms of approaches, um, I mean, you mentioned there's there's different fields that kind of swirl around your world. There's psychology, psychiatry, there's therapists of various different stripes who have right. neither the training of either of those roles. And within all of those, yeah, there are different schools of thought about effective treatments. Sure. You yeah. work within the VA. How much? leeway do you have in terms of saying like i want to use a and i'm going to talk about things that i don't have any idea because it's your field mm -hmm. and not mine but i'm going to use like a cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. approach versus a more esoteric approach or a as a psychologist you're not necessarily prescribing but like as opposed to a medicinal approach right 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 yeah no there's there's lots of different things that you could do and some people are the you know um all I got's a hammer type yeah, of yeah. therapist. This is what right? I do. This yeah. is what I do. Mm -hmm. And when they are working kind of at, I th this is an opinion statement for sure, but when I, when I think they're working at their best, they're identifying actual nails, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, they know their audience and they know who they're going to help most effectively. And they select those people, right, who have like similar uh, kind of goals to what that therapist can then provide, right? And I've known lots of therapists like that. They're just like, eh, I just do anxiety, right? <laughs> like uh, if you don't, I don't want to talk about these Talking other things, the you know, I right. just want to talk about anxiety. And you know, there are lots of patients that are like, great, mm -hmm. I have anxiety. Right, that's what I need. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. And I want it to go away, but I don't want to talk about anything else. I just want the anxiety to go away, right? Okay. And, and if you think about like what therapy is, there's more or less two components. There's like the things you're taking away and the things that you're adding, right? So you can take away symptoms mm -hmm. or you can add a sense of well-being or meaning. Or okay. different behaviors or whatever. You can take away some different behaviors, whatever. But the general gist is that, like, there's lots of therapists that, and this is where treatment comes in, is, like, it's symptom reduction, right? You have depression. We want that depression, those depression symptoms to go away. You have anxiety. We want anxiety to go away, right? Uh, and that's a lot of what psychiatrists do, right? You, here's a medication to make that thing right. you don't like go away, right? Yep. Uh, but the thing that I think is maybe unique and more what I'm uh, kind of my values and my kind of what, what I think is effective for people at large is that you're doing the things where you're adding something, mm -hmm. right? Where you're saying like, you didn't have a sense of well-being or meaning. Let's work towards that. Right. Right. And you're not adding something like you're placing it into their lives, much like, uh, like the opposite is that like treatment is actually this kind of like sense of the the idea that and i think this is where like psychology ultimately doesn't fit the medical model like the idea that we can 
surgically remove your anxiety and not leave some gaping hole, right. to me, seems false, right? right, right. Like, so it, having an understanding of like, not only what you're doing in the therapy room, but how that's gonna affect this person kind of in the long term is, is really important to me. Mm. But to your point, right, there's treatment, and then the other side I'll just call rehabilitation, right? That something happened, and now, now what? Right, mm-hmm. is kind of how, what we think about as rehabilitation, right? Okay. If you, uh, you know, had an injury, you might be rehabilitating towards uh, a, a similar level of functioning, but there are some injuries, for example, that you're not going to ever do that. Yep. So it's like, you well, get to where you can. Let's get to where you can, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and it might be more, it mm-hmm. might be less, who knows? But like, we're building as opposed to taking away. In those therapies where you're building, certainly there's some like kind of manualized or prescriptive ways of doing that, but mostly it's about like you are learning about another person in the process of doing that. They're also learning about themselves, Mm. which we might call a conversation, right? Or (laughs) a relationship, right? Right. And, And, you know, I think it's certainly more than that in the sense that there's like a, a, a number of like boundaries and strictures, but also like kind of goals and ideas that we're like working from, like a way that we kind of conceptualize how somebody operates that like informs that, but it comes down to listening, right? Like, and maybe it's directive listening, but it's Mm -hmm. listening. Mm -hmm. And so I end up feeling like those are much more meaningful and long lasting changes. You know, if we can reduce depression for a little while, it, might come back not only that if you're less depressed it doesn't even necessarily mean that you're more happy right 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 or that you feel a sense of meaning or purpose right you just don't have depression is is the um is the differentiation between psychiatry and psychology which i understand to be and i guess there's a question in this which is is my understanding of this in any way correct Mm -hmm. you know psychiatry is as I understand it, principally treating mental illness through medical means and very often through through drugs. Right. Yeah. Psychology is treating it through the absence of those things largely and treating it through behavioral therapies and through conversation. Sure. And yeah. sort of like never the two shall meet. They may be they may be in conversation in an optimal setting, they would be in conversation with each other, and the administration yeah. of drugs by the psychiatrist would complement therapies by the psychologist. But is it a um why the hell do we do that? I guess is my question. <laughs> like what sense does that make to have two people treating essentially the same thing from two completely different philosophies, you or know, is that actually what it is? Yeah, no, that's what it is. I <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that was well, I mean I it, I think it depends, really. Mm-hmm. Like, there are some, so there, you know, the, the reason why psychiatrists have this particular privilege is like, they're giving something that's going to interact with somebody's body, right? And I'm not, uh, yeah, and I'm absolutely not saying that that's not absolutely the thing that's no, needed in right. certain situations, but. So there needs to be some level of like medical expertise that I don't want to necessarily like comment on whether it's good or bad. Um, but like, that's the rationale. Hmm. I think maybe even the more so this interacts with how psychologists see themselves though also. And I find that to be 
like I, I have lots of opinions about like medications and psychiatrists and those types of things. But the reality is I'm not going to really be talking from a place of expertise. Sure, sure. Because right? it's not your... But what I can say is that like having psychology couched within a uh, like place, like a medical model mm -hmm. where what we think about what we're doing is uh, treating people as opposed to like having relationships with people, mm -hmm. I think is ultimately like mm -hmm. undermining our ability to, to, to be most effective. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that, that's not necessarily in any particular setting. So that could be in the VA yeah, or yeah, it yeah. could be people in private practice. Is right? that an American model? Is that a global model? Like, uh, I, I can't speak to that. I, what I can say is that like much of the research that is done people who are funding that research want to know that it works. Yeah. And to know that it works, you need measurement. Mm -hmm. And these things that are measured are often symptoms, mm -hmm. right? There's very few studies that measure like, yeah, but like, how's the quality of your relationships now? Right, right, right. right. Or, you know, like you used to engage in this really maladaptive pattern of, you know, blah, 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 blah. And now do you do that anymore? Right. Or like, or like you said, maybe you're not as depressed, but are you still, are you happy at all? What's the quality of right, your life? Right. Right. Like I can say how, whether or not my appetite has changed or my sleep is impaired or, you know, these things that they're going to, they're ask they're going to ask on these like uh, symptom measures mm -hmm. or those types of things. But that, I mean, but really the thing that we're measuring is idiosyncratic, right? Like the thing that we want to measure at least is like, but how you doing? Yeah, right, 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 right. right. But how, how are you now? And that's not going to get funded. Hmm. And that's really where I think psychology, that's the battle, right? I don't want to say it's good or bad. I think these other like um, manualized psychotherapies really do inform a lot of the way that we think about how people operate. Because it's so, like, easier that, to measure. That research is incredibly useful. Yeah. Right? But now it's become where people are saying, well, oh, well, if you're not doing measurement-based care, how do you know that you're helping people? And I'm like, well, you just, they're right there. Just ask them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're right in front of you. So just like, you know, if, if, if they're doing okay, they're doing okay. But that doesn't like... Yeah, that's not as satisfying for, for the yeah, damn people. Right. That, that, that's not, I'm not going to get a million dollar grant. Right, 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 right. Because I was like, well, but. Look. That's not something I can put on a graph and show yeah. in a boardroom. She right. said she said she was better, right? <laughs> she smiled more. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, there's all these like other things. So I, I think that's the like tension right now in psychology. Mm. It's like, do we do these things that are ultimately measurable or do we do these things that. You know, we can say, you know what, I don't, I don't care if we're doing the medical model thing. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a doctor, you can mend somebody's broken arm and you have like, that, that's great. Yeah. We should, you should have the medical model for medical interventions, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess you can make an argument that there's other Eastern medications, those type of things. But the point is that there is like, you know, problem solved, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Whereas it's not that cut and dry when you're talking about these kind of really complicated patterns that people engage in because really they're functional, right? Mm -hmm. At some, at some level, mm -hmm. right? Or at least they used to be, right? right. Somebody who has this like kind of negative, uh, this, this attachment style that is causing problems with their romantic relationships might've been really helpful in dealing with their mom, mm -hmm. right? 
And that was useful at that time. Right, the set when of tools seven, they developed yeah, might have been exactly. what, they, what they needed. So they, they have to like recognize the ways in which they're acting automatically yeah. are not helping them in their current kind of lifestyle and, and really impairing their ability to yeah. that, be fully engaged. Yeah, that's what you just hit on. I was just watching uh, recently, I watched a TED Talk. If there's a TED Talk and it has work in the title, I'm probably going to watch it. <laughs> right. um, there was this TED Talk, uh, uh, and you could find it if you just search how to find your dream job without ever looking at your resume. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it's a podcast on work. Let's yeah. let's talk that out. But what she talks about, which made a lot of sense, is the person giving this TED Talk talks about the patterns that we set up as a result, as a, as a reaction to certain stimuli or behavior that then we never re-examine in our lives. Right. She calls them vows. We make a certain set. Very often we choose our first job because mm-hmm. of a vow that we made to do something or as a reaction to something. Right. And then we get into sort of middle life. Right. And I think this is true about things other than work, mm-hmm. where the stimuli that resulted in that vow is no longer sure. Reasonable. Yeah. The yeah. reaction to that is no longer necessary. Yeah. But we never re-examine it to see if the thing that we're doing or the behavior that we have or the job that we chose yeah. is still the fulfilling thing based yeah. on a new set of capabilities or circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very akin to uh, uh, I saw a ther- therapist for a couple of years. It was immensely helpful, and that was sort of what she talked to me about: mm-hmm. is you know the things that you used to do, the things that you learned were the things you needed. Yeah. When you were five. Right. They're not the things that you need yeah. now. Give yourself a break. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was a great message for me to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a tough one for a lot of people to hear because they. I'm glad that you got something out of it, but the thing that's really challenging is like we really hold on to those things mm-hmm. too, right? Mm-hmm. Because not only does it have it seemed necessary, but now we've gotten to the cycle where it also seems necessary currently, yeah. right? And, and just because I say that it was good to hear doesn't mean that I was able to do a damn thing about it. <laughs> I yeah. recognized its truth in yeah. a moment, though. Right, right. No, I, I'm familiar with that pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah I mean, in, in myself and in my work, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, there's tons of things that, that I, even immediate, like even in the moment sometimes I'm like, I'm doing that thing. Hmm. Yeah, I'm yeah, doing yeah. that thing, yep. and I'm just going to keep doing it because I don't, know what else to do right it's the reflex yeah, it's, it's some kind of reflex and and now i'm like stuck in this cycle again and then once you get out of it you're like or once you've gone past it, you're like oh that was that thing i need right. you know you right right and i think that's the thing you know when i was talking to her that was sort of the thing that i got out of that conversation was i wanted i wanted to snip the wire that triggered the reaction right and her thing was Maybe just recognize it a little bit earlier. <laughs> maybe just yeah. get ten seconds earlier into that into that process. Maybe you know, maybe nipping it in the bud isn't going to happen this year. Yeah, in my own experience, I, I don't know if this is necessarily true for anybody else, but in my own experience, it's like uh, you know, you'll the first time you realize it like a week later, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then hopefully you realize it like right. two or three days later, right. and then at some point you realize it like. 20 or 30 minutes later. And then like <laughs> after you've like gone through doing this a number of different times and have some mindfulness, uh, uh, some awareness of that pattern, at some point, hopefully, you yeah. can be like, I'm doing the thing. Right now. And then like there's the record scratch moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, I've got a ways to go. You may wonder that. how I got to this point. Right? <laughs> right. The narrator comes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, we were wondering. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, we're almost at, at time, and these people have been generous. There was one kind of area that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit because I think when I first started this show, you and I spoke, and you had challenged me 
to, to explore the conversation about what does work mean to these people whose work has been marginalized. Right. And I wanted to ask you, like, in, in your experience with these folks, that question of meaningful work, like, what do you, what do you encounter and what are the main hindrances right, to people right. who are experiencing, whether it's dramatic mental illness that we've been sure, talking yeah. about, how does that impact their ability to mm. an experience of work. Right. So this is like a, maybe a huge, it's obviously, it huge, is a, yeah, a huge area. No, but it's like a huge problem. F- I mean, yes, it is a huge area, but it's also a huge problem for, uh, uh, veterans specifically because of a lot of the disabling things are like physical pain. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's obviously a huge problem for people uh, with severe mental illness because the, those symptoms are impacting their functioning. But I see a lot of veterans who are aging into retirement age or they are forced to retire because, you know, like they jumped out of a bunch of planes and their knees are bad, just can't, won't won't let them do the things that they used to be able to do. And so like the things that they found meaningful, which oftentimes was their work are just gone. Mm -hmm. And like having to reframe this idea of work as work for pay, Mm -hmm. specifically, I I would guess specifically in America is a pretty um, tough thing to do, right? We, We often associate work with the paycheck, right? Yeah. Like we're, we're, we're providing for our and, family. And, and or, with identity right? so much. Exactly. So like my, my identity is that like, you know, and especially a lot of these primarily male veterans come from this kind of history of, you know, um, providing and that's their role and that type of thing. And, you know, so they'll like have gone to Vietnam and, and then have provided for their family all their, all their lives. And then all of a sudden they can't do that anymore mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And, it brings up a lot of issues. Sometimes it brings up memories of their time in Vietnam. Sometimes it brings up, you know, like, well, what the hell am I doing now? Yeah. Right. I, I have no value. I have no worth. And so this idea of like, well, your work does not necessarily need to come from a paycheck and we can build a sense of meaning and purpose without getting paid to do so, I think is, is a really important part of that for, People who are, I mean, as you say, marginalized, probably it's true for people with severe mental illness, but also people are just like retired, right? Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. right. Yep. Like, like, you know, work, I think, is just like, what is it that you're doing to, I don't even know, like, it's not even to make the world a better place, but just like, what is it, what are you, what is the, what are, what are you doing with your time that is not specifically for enjoyment that there's a right. project there's a product there's something that you want to get out of that that is not just like i'm enjoying it you want to accomplish something you want to accomplish something yeah yep. and and that's a really hard hurdle to get over for a lot of people mm-hmm. and i think maybe veterans in particular that's something that 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 they experience because of their you know when they were working as a military service person uh they really like their value was intrinsically tied to yeah. their work, right? Yeah. And their pay and all of that was all in one package and their camaraderie mm-hmm. and their mission. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all of that oh, is all man. together, right? So yeah. like if you were to imagine, you know, somebody who, you know, for a long time thought, you know, like I am working for America. 
right? <laughs> right? Right. That's big. It's a huge concept. Yeah, and yeah. I feel so enriched by that. And I see all these messages around, you know, uh, how important that is. And I feel that. And, and you know, I uh, am uplifted by my family or friends that are that thank me for my service. And then yeah. all of a sudden, man, I can't do that anymore. That's, that's a huge loss. Yeah, my work was heroic. Yeah. yeah. Now... I can't do any work, yeah. or my work certainly is is menial yeah. at best. Yeah. What a hard transition. Right. It's life or death, right? Yeah. yeah. Literally, oftentimes. And then, you know, they're like sorting packages, and it sucks. Well, no, and it's no wonder why you get guys. I, I A couple of years ago, um, I was on an airplane with a guy that had done two tours in Afghanistan, and we just happened to be sitting next to each other, and um, he was telling me a little bit about it, and... You know, I think I said something like, "Hey, glad you're you're back and you're safe and you're well." And yeah. and he was like, "God, I can't I can't wait to get back there." Yeah. And yeah. and the more we talked, I realized like he's got a wife, he's got three kids at home. All they want is him home, and all he all he wants is to get back. And certainly, there's the like sort of whatever PTSD type like I can't deal with. Yeah, the but, boredom and all that, but there's the work part of it. That's yeah. like I was doing meaningful yeah. things there. Like there's I nothing was, meaningful yeah. for me to do here. Right, right. The idea of protecting the country from bad guys. Yeah, really alluring. Yeah. Right, and you know I understand that. The, on the on the one side, there's the like. I think the point is that like that meaning and. Uh, mission, that sense of mission mm-hmm. is really hard to replace outside of the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. nothing's going to compare to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, has that, have those discussions, I mean, do they influence your ideas about your work? What's that, what's that done over time to... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to even imagine how really... I mean, obviously, there's there's the, like, kind of cultural, like being a veteran is a piece of culture in itself and, yeah. and kind of recognizing that cultural difference has been a huge part of my work because I see veterans. And so understanding how the like sense of camaraderie and mission are the two things that often feel like lost when yeah. people are uh, separated from the military for whatever reason. But then it's also like, you know, that's, that's how can people, veterans or not, have a sense that they're working towards something, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Right. Which ultimately is what we all want yeah. from work. Of course. Last question, and again, sort of a big topic, but it, in, it, this has been so informative for me because I think it's a glimpse into psychology and psychotherapy in general are such a field that, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, that, that, it, that is so foreign to our experience. It's something generally that dealing with people, especially with dramatic mental illness, is something that we push yeah. as far away from ourselves right. as Or even possible. mild mental illness. It's like uh, yeah. it's a black box. Right. Intentionally so, right? It's totally private. Yeah. Like there's there's very few instances in which I even get to see another therapist work because of those like privacy right. concerns. You know, yeah. sometimes I'll do co-therapy in a group or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but rarely will I ever see another therapist work. And it's like, you know, on the one hand, I, I feel a little bit on an island. But on the other hand, like it, it is a little bit of a mystery, you know, what what's happening, especially since people do it very differently. Right. You know, and, right, and right. so like this two people can do. 100% different things and both be very effective, right? What do you wish was was sort of different in the public interaction with those issues 
what do you wish that people sort of either knew differently or did differently or had a different conception of that would demystify some of that stuff for the general kind of populace? I I think like this idea of like a a head shrinker, you know, Mm -hmm. that that we're doing something mystical Mm -hmm. is, is something that, um, you know, like on the, on the one hand, it, it, like maybe has some cachet at parties, you know, <laughs> like, right. are, are you psychoanalyzing me right now? Right. Exactly. I was like, no, cause <laughs> you know, you're not paying me to do so. Right. <laughs> right? Well, you and also like over some cash, yeah, I'd be happy like, to. Like it's, it's a relationship. Like everyone is psychoanalyzing everyone at all times. Right. Yeah, Every, yeah. Everyone is like listening and, and you know, whether effectively or not, like, taking in that message and returning it back. And, that, mm. and that's really all that it is. It's like the thing that I would like people to recognize is like, yeah, we're informed in some way and we're educated and we have like a, uh, a, a meaning to the, the madness, so to speak, but we are just talking, right? Like, and there's some things that of course you're not going to want to talk about yeah. and it's scary to talk about, but you know, we're not going to like... That that's that's all that it is, right? right. It's, it's just a conversation. It's just a relationship. We're not going to take you somewhere you don't want to go. We're not right. going to force something on you that right. you're not ready not. for. Yeah, and and obviously the stigma of uh, psychotherapy, I would like to go away. But but mostly, I just want people to recognize that, like, you know, hey, here we are. We're two people, and in this particular relationship, you get to just talk about you. And that's it, you know, and I'm, I'm right. going to, you know, right. tell you some things that I think are important and hopefully they'll be helpful to you and ask you questions that I think will be helpful to you. But really you just get to talk about yourself yeah. and that's pretty cool. And Oh, the other part is the other person's not going to judge you. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that's nice. Man, yeah. that's the advertisement for it. I think somebody right. had laid out to me years ago about yeah. that's what it actually is. Yeah, you get to talk to somebody about yourself, and they're not going to judge you right. at all. They're not going to talk to people about it. They're not going to gossip yeah. about it. They're not going to tell. And maybe, just maybe, yeah. as a result of some of those conversations, you might understand yourself better, and you might be a, a, a slightly happier person. Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> what a bargain. It sounds pretty good. It yeah, sounds yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. The supervisor was like, when people tell you they can't afford therapy, just ask them, can you afford not to go to therapy? <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. <laughs> right. It's time for another round. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I, I really have enjoyed this. I mean, it is one of those things that like, it's a, it's a profession and what you do is something that we all talk about a lot and it is a black box and I, I, this has been really illustrative for me, I hope for other people. Well, good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Kingfisher. Their website calls it a ground-to-glass cocktails and snacks bar in an artful basement at 321 East Chapel Hill Street in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Thanks to Sean, the owner, and the staff for the cocktails and for welcoming us in during the busy holiday season. Kingfisher is a great little hideaway, whether crowded around the horseshoe-shaped bar or tucked as we were into one of the cozy alcoves. Check out the photos on our website, and if you're in Durham, stop by for a drink and tell them you heard it on The Distiller when you do. Huge thanks, of course, to my guest Brandon Irvin for sharing his work and his story with us. There's so much we could have covered, but as an insight into the actual practice of psychology, how you really meet those patients where they are and help them move to a better place, I'm humbled by the work Brandon does. We talk about meaningful work on this show. In the midst of all the political discussions about the VA and about mental health in our culture overall, Brandon is one of the people just doing the work every day, 
You can learn more about the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and specifically about the Durham VA healthcare system, including the mission of the VA, information on PTSD, ways to support their work, and locations of VA-approved urgent care facilities near you, all at durham.va.gov. And we will, of course, link there from our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed by Justin Golden. Our logo is by Scott Ryan Design, and videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen and download every episode at thedistillerpodcast.com, where you can find links, photos of the guests, and a map of every one of our show locations, no matter where we were. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. Follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to help us make more of these episodes, just click on the Become a Patron button on our website for more information. Huge thanks to our existing patrons. And finally, please take a second to rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen so that more people can find out about the show. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.